0: anybody out there. Roll up, roll up. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages. Books, comics, sci-fi, TV and film live from the Palace of Glittering Delights. And here hosts host, Dandre Leyland. The furor has died down. The hype and hyperbole left in the recent past. The YouTube whiners have moved on to Captain Marvel slash Game of Thrones slash continuing to bitch about Star Wars delete, as applicable. The general audiences seem to have accepted it. For now, anyway. To what do I refer? Well, Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who, of course. It's been six months since Whittaker's first season finished, and six months at least until she returns for her second. I've heard all the whining. She didn't earn the role she was given it. SJWs ruin everything. Feminist propaganda. It's political correctness gone mad. It's the media's lefty bias. Blah, blah, blah. So I thought it would be fun, and not at all provocative, to look at Whitaker's casting and her debut episode and see if, in the cold light of nearly a year later, These criticisms stand up to see if there is any truth in them at all, other than whiny fanboy bitching designed to get YouTube upvotes. To see, far more importantly, if the show, truly the most important thing, still entertains, informs, and, most importantly, plays to as wide an audience as possible. Because here's the key. Doctor Who is not a niche show. It is not a cult show. It's a major mainstream drama on a major television network aimed at a mass audience. It was always thus. Doctor Who was phenomenally popular with regular audiences for the first 21 years of its life. When it stopped appealing to that audience, and aimed purely at the fans, as it started to do under producer John Nathan Turner from the early 1980s onward, that's when the death knell sounded. It's arguable that after Peter Davison left the show with The Caves of Androzani, the series disappeared up its own arse, constantly referencing its own mythology, and oftentimes had stories that relied on a piece of arcane knowledge from an episode that may have heard over 15 years before. The show also looked cheap in the Colin Baker years, and the ratings tumbled in competition with glossier, higher-budgeted US imports. Dissatisfied with the show, the acting, the publicity, hell, the whole damn thing at this point, the fans became vocal and, rightly or wrongly, the BBC listened. Around the last few years of the show's original run, fans like Ian Levine and Andrew Beach were penning articles for major newspapers like the Daily Mail and appearing on TV shows like the BBC's own Did You See, decrying Nathan Turner, demanding he be fired, and calling for the replacement of then-Dr. Sylvester McCoy because of his pantomime antics. Now, it's hard to disagree with them. Colin Baker's seasons are awful. McCoy's first story is a pantomime, as is most of his first season. But when the BBC themselves are producing think pieces that slag off their own show, maybe the fans are being given too much attention. It's not hard to see a direct correlation between the likes of Levine and Beach and today's YouTubers like Nerd Erotic and Doomcock. I personally think the BBC just tired of the fans, just as much as Powell tired of Nathan Turner, and just wanted them to go away. And so they axed the show. Oh, they were insidious about it. The axe fell quietly with the empty promises of a political candidate that the show was being rested, that it would return. The signs initially looked fairly promising, with McCoy having decided to stay another year and Sophie Aldred both being offered contracts for the 1990 television season, although these offers were equally quietly withdrawn before the end of 1989. With all that said, nothing could prepare us for the sheer invective hurled at Jodie Whittaker because she committed that most heinous of crimes She took a job. Now, I have to confess, the announcement that Peter Capaldi was leaving the role after four years was not a surprise. Of all the actors to take on the role, only Tom Baker, John Pertwee and David Tennant stayed longer than four series. And with Tennant, that was a matter of semantics. His first episode aired on a Christmas day. And his last episode aired on a New Year's Day. Meaning that, yes, technically, he did six years but only due to a quirk of scheduling. In addition, when a new producer takes over, as was happening with Whittaker's era, they traditionally employed a new actor. Both Pertwee and Baker, with some crossover, had new production teams. Baker's final season saw a new producer come in, and the first thing that producer did was give Baker his walking papers. That producer stuck around through Peter Davison, Colin Baker, and Sylvester McCoy. And look how that turned out. When Russell T. Davis left, he took David Tennant with him. So when current producer, Stephen Moffat, announced his departure, it was only a matter of time before Capaldi followed suit. Chris Chibnall was announced as showrunner for the new season in January of 2016. This was of far more importance to people like me. A Doctor is only as good as their scripts. Ask poor Colin Baker. And Chibnall was hit and miss. Back in the 80s, he'd been one of those disgruntled fans bemoaning the direction of the series. So it's hard to feel sorry for him when those same fans want to offer their opinions on his work. At this point, he'd written for and ran the first two seasons of the Who spin-off Torchwood. Numerous episodes of Who were written by Chibnall for both Tennant and Matt Smith. He'd penned a few episodes of Life on Mars and show-ran Law & Order UK. His biggest success was Broadchurch, an ITV crime drama about the investigation into the death of a young boy, which had starred three doctors David Tennant, David Bradley, and Jodie Whittaker. A specially shot teaser, airing in the middle of the Wimbledon final in 2017, announced Whittaker's arrival, something that caused me to sit up and take notice. None! Of the choices that had been mooted up to that point, people like Chris Marshall, Rory Kinnear or Ben Wishaw did anything for me. They're all solid actors, but there was nothing Doctor-ish about them. The only one I could really see in the role was Wishaw, but he came across as being too much like Matt Smith. Besides, his being Q in the Daniel Craig Bond movies probably meant he was out of the running. Whitaker, however, was a breath of regenerative energy. Jodie Whittaker was one of TV's rising stars. Her role in Broadchurch has shown her dramatic range with her portrayal of grieving mother Beth Latimer. But she'd also excelled in the low-budget science fiction drama Attack the Block with another future sci-fi superhero John Bayarga. Just after she was announced as the new Doctor Who, she starred in the BBC drama Trust Me as a nurse who pretended to be a doctor to gain a salary increase. Whittaker was funny down to earth, could handle the dramatic moments and was incredibly charming. So, of course, the internet hated her. One of the prevailing criticisms I have seen was she was just handed the role. Well, no, she auditioned. She is, in fact, the only actor to have auditioned for the role since Matt Smith. And only she and Smith had to audition at all since the show came back in 2005. With Chris Eccleston, David Tennant and Peter Capaldi, the role was theirs to turn down. Sadly, when this is pointed out to YouTubers with evidence to articles, interviews, graphs, charts, PowerPoint presentations, the works, they dismiss it. I mean, sure, she was a favourite of Chibnall's from early on. Even sounding her out in a meeting where she was more interested in playing a bad guy. But both Whittaker and the producers have said that she had to do a number of auditions and they did look at other people. The BBC weren't just going to give her the role. She just hadn't earned it yet, baby. The men had all earned it. But Whittaker, not so much. There are numerous articles on RadioTimes.com and The Guardian about the audition process. It's pretty easy to Google. The next criticism, social justice worries ruin everything, is more of an opinion than a criticism. Sure, everybody gets a bit bored when the politics of something are rammed down our throats, but it's all in moderation. Doctor Who has always had a slight political bent. Its hero is largely a pacifist who thinks guns are the weapons of children and idiots. And this isn't a viewpoint that is new to Whittaker's incarnation of the character. It's also one shared by Sylvester McCoy's seventh Doctor. John Pertwee's era of the show did a number of ecology-themed shows, and pretty much any time the Sea Devils showed up was an opportunity for the writers to indulge in some commentary on colonialism, such as Doctor Who and the Silurians from Pertwee's first series. Colonialism crops up as a theme quite a few times in Doctor Who, featuring in Kinder and Snake Dance, both from the Davison era, and ecology and looking after the planet is one of Doctor Who's pet themes, cropping up in Inferno, Colony in Space, and the Green Death from the Pertwee era, the Seeds of Doom from Tom Baker's tenure, and Warriors of the Deep from Davison's room, with probably more examples I can't think of off the top of my head. Plus, I can't even begin to count the amount of times the Doctor has been seen to be anti-authoritarian or snotty about capitalism. War has come under fire a lot in the show, be it Peter Davison's swan song, The Caves of Androzani, or the unsubtle but effective attack on Nazism in the Tom Baker classic genesis of the Daleks. Peter Capaldi's incarnation of the Doctor tackled a similar topic, alongside more hot topics like radicalisation and immigration in the Zygon Invasion. The Sunmakers, from Tom Baker's era, was an attack on taxation. Vincent and the Doctor, from Matt Smith's run, a look at depression. And it's hard to see Sylvester McCoy's story, The Happiness Patrol, as anything but an attack on then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The question is has the show become led by its agenda, rather than it being a byproduct of the story being told? Curiously, this question was being asked of writer Malcolm Hulk back in the 1970s. Overall though, that's in the eye of the beholder, but given that we're only 10 episodes in Whitaker's first season, maybe the feeling that too many of the shows this year felt like a political tract. However, when one of those shows, Rosa, was one of the most talked about episodes of TV that year and nominated for a BAFTA, it's hard to get bent out of shape about it. That being said, for every positive, like Rosa, there was a negative, like Arachnids in the UK, which featured a terrible parody of President Donald Trump, a man who is so much of a parody of himself anyway, that it spoiled an otherwise fun episode. So it's definitely gone too far in places. Overall, though, I didn't find Whitaker's first season any more political than Russell T Davies or Stephen Moffat's respective eras. Now, on to the issue of it being a feminist propaganda I would argue that Doctor Who hasn't always been great to its female co-stars, but Sarah Jane Smith was clearly a feminist. If you don't think so, go back and rewatch her episodes. Tegan Jovanka, Ace McShane, or Gail, depending on your point of view, Rose Tyler, Amy Pond, and Clara Oswald all owe a huge debt to Sarah Jane. Besides, apart from a few gags here and there, the Doctor's change of gender was burly mentioned. She comes across to me as a mixture of Davison's youthful air and Tennant's manic energy, neither characteristic being inherently male. So let's cast our minds back to the 7th of October 2018, when Whitaker's debut, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, finally erred. As an aside, when I initially read that title, I read it as The Woman Who... Fell to Earth, as in the name of the character was Who and She Fell to Earth, rather than, as everybody else did, a play on The Man Who Fell to Earth. But maybe that's just me. There were a number of firsts in this show, in addition to being Whitaker's debut. It was the first episode to move transmission days from Saturday to Sunday since the show came back in 2005. Other than specials, obviously. Changing the day was apparently a massive deal, as everything appears to be nowadays. To be fair, this was a thing when they did it back with Peter Davison in 1981, but there it worked well. They also made the show twice weekly back then, thankfully something that wasn't considered here. It was a change, though, and a change that worked well, with this episode attracting nearly 11 million viewers overall. It wasn't the first premiere to run for an extended runtime, clocking in at 64 minutes, but it was the first regular episode not to have any opening credits at all. No title sequence or interstitials. It just starts and then keeps going. The episode was also the first since Matt Smith took over to have a completely new team both in front of and behind the camera with a new cast, producer and composer. So, what did they put together? Written by Chibnall and directed by Jamie Childs, the episode looks amazing. I have no idea of the budget this season, but it looks as good as any drama currently on the air, and a far cry from the BBC didn't care about Doctor Who back in the 80s. The opening shots make Sheffield look like a desirable place, for God's sake. We open with a young man, 19-year-old Ryan Sinclair, on a hill with his grandma, Grace, and his step-grandfather, Graham. Possessing of dyspraxia, Graham can't ride a bike and takes his frustration out on the two-wheeled terror, hurling it down a hillside. The character beats for these three characters are set up efficiently. Ryan and his grandma clearly have a supportive relationship, although she's not above telling him when he's been a dickhead. He isn't as enamored with his grand's husband, Graham, who seems like a decent sort. Graham is played by Bradley Walsh, arguably the best-known new cast member, perhaps even more so than Whittaker. Walsh has had a spectacular career, ranging from acting, game show host and singer, scoring the best-selling debut album of 2016. Toasting coal is Ryan, and he's pretty good here, highlighting his frustration at his dyspraxia. Grace and Graham have to catch a train, so Ryan is sent after his bike alone. He finds it stuck in a tree. He also finds a bizarre light show and a funny egg thing. After finding the egg, Ryan calls the police, and young go-getter Yasmin Khan is sent to see what this crazy report is all about. Yaz is played by Mandip Gill, another newcomer to the acting profession, with only a few parts to her name. Curiously, both Cole and Gil are alumni from the teen soap Hollyoaks. In more efficient, some might say convenient, scriptwriting, Yaz and Ryan know each other from school, although they haven't seen each other for a while. It's early doors, yeah, but the people criticising the scriptwriting perhaps aren't looking at stuff like character introductions and pacing, as this is all really very well done. Characters are drawn quickly, relationships are set up, and we know these people in very little screen time. Yaz is a newly minted copper and wants some action. Ryan is unsure of himself or where he wants to be as he studies to be a mechanic. His gran and Graham are clearly devoted to each other and to what's best for Ryan. And this is all done in less than six minutes of screen time. Of course, this is all just build up to the main event, the arrival of the Doctor. Grace and Graham's train suddenly comes to a screeching halt as a bizarre energy ball appears. They are saved by a scruffy blonde woman in an oversized black coat and Doc Martin boots. The train can't have travelled that far as Ryan and Yaz arrive to see all the action. There's another guy on the train, Carl, but he's not interested in any of this and just wants to go and get on with his life. Pay him, no, never mind. He will not be important later. Whitaker's opening scene fizzes with energy. As with all actors to portray the Doctor, she needs to own the character from the get-go with no hesitation, deviation or repetition and thankfully she nails it from the off. The Doctor is a whirling dervish, acting, reacting, questioning, constantly on the move, all the while recovering from post-regeneration stress which sees her not remember who she is. Instantly, Whittaker channels the character. She's confident and sassy, abrupt and funny, unsure but in charge all at the same time. The Doctor needs to be someone who can walk into any situation and instantly take charge of that situation. Someone who people listen to but also can be whimsical and funny whilst possessing a genuine outrage over injustice as well as having a keen intellect and an interest in the weird and wacky world she inhabits. Whittaker possesses all of this. There's a little bit of Capaldi's brusqueness, a lot of Tennant's charm, and a smidge of Smith and Davison's youthful exuberance. As an aside, it's always odd seeing the new incumbent in the previous actor's clothes whenever the Doctor regenerates. Look how weird Colin Baker looked in Davison's cricket whites, or Matt Smith in Tennant's suit. But Whittaker really suits Capaldi's white-shirt-black-coat combo. I kind of wish she kept it. Here's her introduction in the episode.
1: Sorry. Tell you later. Doors. Lock shop. We'll see about that. No Sonic. Empty pockets. Oh, I hate empty pockets. He's coming back. What are you? Ooh. Okay. Don't like questions. More the private type. I get that. You, stay very still. He's gonna kill us. He could've done that already. (gasps) Ren! Stay away! Oh my (laughs) God. You three, relax, but stay put. I'll check the rest of the train. Fat lot of use you two were. Come there, please, madam. I need you to do as I say. This could be a potential crime scene. Why thing. call me, madam? Because you're a woman. Am I? Does it suit me? What? Oh, yeah. I remember. Sorry. Half an hour ago, I was a white haired Scotsman. When's the next train due? This is the last one back. But the doors are locked. How did you both get in? Driver's window was smashed in. What's your name? PC Khan Hallamshire Police. Name, not title. Yasmin Khan. Yes, to my friends. Can I have your name, please? When I can remember it. You don't know your own name? Of course I know it. just can't remember it. It's right there on the tip of my... What's that? Tongue. Tongue! Smart boy, biology. What did she call you? Ryan? Yeah, Ryan Sinclair. Good name. Are you a doctor, Ryan? No. Shame. I'm looking for a doctor.
0: Uh, rather than just go through and recount the plot like I normally do with this kind of thing, I'll just get that out of the way so that we can look at the more important things this episode has to offer. So, basically, the Doctor discovers that the thing that trashed the train and the Ed thing that Ryan found are actually related to the warlike race, the Stenza, and, she assumes, another race. The alien being responsible is Tsim Sha, who is here on a Predator-style hunt for a random human, Carl. Told you he'd be back. However, Zim has broken the rule sending a pod to find him and access his DNA data, a DNA machine that has also infected the Doctor and her new friends, and she needs to find a way to remove the devices it has implanted in their collarbone. Using the information Yaz took from Carl on the train, the Doctor's new fam must head to the construction site where Carl works to stop Zim, shut down the egg-slash-coil thing, and remove their DNA bombs. Okay, that's the plot at its most basic. It is a tad convoluted, but it's serviceable. It barrels from one plot point to another, and it all just about tracks if you're paying attention. Tsim looks like a predator rip off, so why not go the whole hog of having him be here for the hunt? Tzim will return in the season's final episode, but his war won't be a recurring factor. Of the criticisms I've read, the convoluted nature of the plot is the one I tend to agree with the most. Tzim Shah is actually a really well realised villain his face being embedded with the teeth of his victims is chilling, and his voice is suitably dramatic. Throughout the episode, he kills with impunity, bringing back Doctor Who's impressively high body count, something the classic series and Russell T Davies' era embraced, but one that Moffat never seemed comfortable with. Tim provides the funniest scene in the show, when the Doctor misunderstands his name as being Tim Shaw, which he gets understandably pissed off about, and thus she calls him this forevermore. This was a very Doctor-ish moment. In fact, the episode is full of Doctor-ish moments. The Doctor stumbles over her words, explains what regeneration is and why she's all over the place. She has a funny few one-liners and dramatic beats, as well as constructing a new sonic screwdriver made of Sheffield steel and grit. It fizzing and backfiring on first use is a classic Doctor Who riff, showing once again that the Doctor isn't quite as good as she thinks she is. However, when she needs to be good in the final confrontation, she's very, very good, exuding determination and grit as well as any previous incarnation. The actual writing has come in for a kicking a lot from YouTubers and on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I know what you're thinking, consider the source, but people have been very unkind to the writing, so let's have a look at that, should we? On a construction level, the script is textbook. Characters set up in the first few scenes are paid off in the last few scenes, such as Ryan's desire to learn to ride a bike, which he ultimately does for Grace, and Yaz's quest for a more interesting job. Even the first few lines of the episode, Ryan's YouTube video about the greatest woman he's ever met, is turned on its head. We think he's talking about the Doctor, but he is instead talking about Grace, who dies in the final confrontation. As an aside, this was a weak spot for me personally, not due to the writing, but the announcements prior to the episode erring of the new cast. The BBC should have included Grace in the cast shot, so as to retain the surprise of her death. Ryan's relationship with Graham will take longer to conclude, but the seeds are sown here. Ryan is even the person who sets the plot in progress. One claim of bad writing has us wonder why Tim Shaw has the lights and egg appear in the middle of nowhere. This isn't bad writing. He doesn't want to be found. Surely, therefore, it makes more sense to have it appear somewhere private. Having this pop up in the middle of Piccadilly Circus would be silly. Likewise, the story itself moves from scene to scene with rapidity, but it tends to follow through, as I mentioned, if you're paying attention and not live tweeting your hate or typing into your phone how bad this is. Yaz is questioning Carl on the train, something that explains how the Doctor can locate Carl later. The DNA bombs add some unneeded jeopardy, but they do pay off. The Doctor ultimately tricks Tim Shaw into absorbing them himself, thus disposing of him in the same manner in which he tried to kill her and her new friends. Irony! The Doctor uses these to track him down, implying that if he hadn't cheated, the Doctor wouldn't have found him. That's actually quite clever writing. We find out that the Stenza have done this before. A scene that allows the Doctor access to a garage that lets her build a new Sonic, as well as providing a tragic coder for a character who only wanted to know more about the disappearance of his sister. This called for further complaints of bad writing. How did you know where the egg thing was? But it's explained in the show! He has a computer set up to locate disturbances similar to those which occurred the night his sister disappeared. The Egg and Light Show caused the same kind of disturbance, allowing him to track it down. Inference in script writing isn't bad writing. It's crediting the audience with the intelligence to follow what's going on. Chibnall imbues personalities into all of the characters that Tim Shaw kills, making us feel for them. The man who searches for his sister dies a sad and lonely death, Tim cruelly telling him he will die without ever knowing why. The death of the elderly security guard is a poignant moment in comparison with the death of the drunken kebab eater, which is played for laughs. But in all three cases, the men feel like fully fleshed out characters rather than cannon fodder. There is no explanation for how the Doctor survived the fall from a great height nor is the TARDIS or TARDIS console seen but overall the episode follows a standard Doctor Who regeneration episode to the letter. We get the Doctor being a bit vague followed by the redemptive I am the Doctor moment followed by the saving of the day followed by the choosing of the new costume. All these elements are required when a new incarnation of the Doctor appears although different writers do tend to bugger around with the order in which they happen. The Doctor choosing her outfit is safe for the end, and instead of being in the TARDIS wardrobe, she's in a local charity shop. The final outfit she chooses has best been described as looking like a cross between 70 Scottish rockers, the Bay City Rollers, and Mark from Ork. A question why she got her ear pierced, though. Overall, though, the writing is solid. As an episode, it's not as good a debut as Matt Smith or John Pertwee, but it's nowhere near as terrible as Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy or as meh as Paul McGann. It's probably on a par with Peter Davison and Tom Baker in that it's a good adventure, ably mounted and hugely entertaining. However, Rotten Tomatoes, I know, I know, and the more vocal YouTubers will have you believe that the SJW agenda ruins this debut. So again, let's look at that in more detail. Well, that was quick. You know why? Because there isn't an SJW agenda to this episode. Unless, of course, you're counting the inclusion of women or people of colour in the cast, rather than that simply being reflective of the times. Because I walk down the street every day and see people who look at Yaz and Ryan and Grace. And Graham, for that matter. If you are counting that as an SJW agenda, well, I kind of think you really need to look at yourself, rather than an episode of Doctor Who. I wonder what it is you're really criticising. The only moment in the episode that can be considered a SJW agenda moment is the Doctor's line about knives, which, whilst an admirable sentiment, given London's knife crime statistics, does land like a hammer on a foot. But it's one line. One line. Hardly an agenda. In fact, the episode doesn't even really seem to have much of a subtext or central metaphor at all. Maybe I'm missing it, normally I'm quite good at picking up on that kind of thing, but the convoluted nature of this story aside, it's pretty straightforward, in so much as characters go from A to B to C in linear fashion, taking us along with them. I mean, I suppose one could argue that it's SJW agendas have a character in it with dyspraxia, but again, not something that really plays into the plot that much. It's just a character characteristic of that particular person. It's like giving a character asthma and saying it's part of the SJW agenda. The final item that we have to look at is the ratings. Obviously, how people view telly has changed over the years, not least since Doctor Who came back in 2005. In addition to the original airing, the show goes on catch-up for seven days and then on BBC iPlayer for a further 30 days. In recent months, however, the BBC have moved to putting their key shows up for longer, the result being that every episode of Who since its regeneration in 2005 is on BBC iPlayer right now, including Whittaker's first season. As such, true ratings are pretty impossible to calculate. As Russell T Davies pointed out only recently, his first episode, Rose, is still getting new views on iPlayer and Netflix. Nevertheless, this didn't stop the sky-is-falling YouTube videos and tweets complaining about the ratings. Some fur, some in full-on frothing-at-the-mouth rants. The Scum, sorry, The Sun, an alleged newspaper, reported PC plots exterminate Doctor Who's ratings. But given that this is a Rupert Murdoch-owned paper, and as a rival broadcaster, he has a vested interest in seeing the BBC not do well, let's assume there's a little bit of a bias there. The first episode, as I've said, attracted 11 million viewers across platforms in its first seven days, but by the time the fifth episode erred, this had dropped to 8 million viewers, the exact same fall in ratings as Chris Eccleston's series back in 2005. Both Tennant and Smith dropped more or less the same over the same amount of time. The only modern doctor to not drop by this many? Peter Capaldi. Now, Peter Capaldi's episode ratings were generally lower than any of his predecessors, so maybe by that point the viewing figures had slipped into such a pattern that the, co- that the core fanbase was going to remain the same, therefore the drop-off would be less, but it's still notable. For the first half of the season, Whittaker averaged nearly 9 million viewers, according to blog to who the biggest since the show came back. The show fell further in the latter half of the season, but closed out with a special on New Year's Day, which clocked up with seven and a quarter million viewers. Its audience share was 34%, the highest since Matt Smith's debut season. It is still one of the BBC's top rated drama shows. I have no idea why fans on YouTube would want to paint this season's accomplishments in a negative light. And it will be interesting to see if Whittaker can build on these ratings or lose viewers, as all her predecessors did. Presumably, though, Whittaker, Chibnall and the BBC are hoping they can fail as well as they did this year, next year. Some of the appeal of the show has to be the cinematography. The show looks as good as it ever has. Gone are the days of it being a bargain basement series, as it now competes with The Bodyguard, Line of Duty, and other prestigious big-budget dramas as a jewel in the BBC's crown. But crucially, it doesn't ape any of them. My big issue with the Paul McGann movie is it just looks like every other American television science fiction show of the mid-90s, with nothing unique about it. Doctor Who should always look slightly different. At times, this particular episode, for example, looked like a Ridley Scott movie rather than an episode of a BBC television drama, which is no bad thing in my estimation. The new score by Sigun Akinola, who took over scoring duties on the series this year from Murray Gold, who'd scored every episode since the series came back, took a while to grow on me. And whilst I'm still not convinced by it, I'm not as averse to it as I was. There is a soundtrack album available, but here's the new reworking of the theme, which you weren't allowed to hear in the episode itself. Overall, this was actually a joy to revisit. It's Doctor Who, given a new lease of life. The last time it felt this exuberant was in Matt Smith's debut season. Everything is new, shiny and vibrant. The cast all seem up for it and having a ball, and the feel of the show is different but the same. But that's Doctor Who all over, isn't it? Something old, something new, something borrowed, something… blue. welcome back. Our first email tonight is from Alistair Jakes. Good point well made. Hi Andrew. I just listened to Now Voyager Part 3 and your explanations of your thoughts on the retcon of Murray Jane knowing Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Your points make sense. Writers sometimes can't resist upturning every little stone of narrative potential With regards to the revelation that Gwen Stacy was retconned to be having an affair with Norman Osborn, I understand your perspective and it does sound unpleasant and a story to quietly ignore, but again, as a Doctor Who fan, I am hardened by this. At least you can safely ignore a retcon by future writers. When the lead showrunner decides to have something egregious and horrible happen to the lead female in the ongoing series, then entrench it firmly in the lore of the best parts of that series, it's so much worse. No spoilers, but there are some things I really do not like about season 6 of Doctor Who. Is that Matt Smith's second series? Season 6? Is that? Right, okay. Oh, and I'm glad you ended up liking Summer Voyager. I liked all the characters, yes, even Chakotay and Neelix. An episode that still sticks with me is "Course Oblivion. That episode hurt because the concept, acting and dialogue was so on point. I confess I stopped my rewatch after season two, since I need an ongoing narrative to drag me through the bad episodes. But if you catch a good one, then the cast shine. Alistair. Well, thank you very much, Alistair. It was nice to hear from you again. Always nice to see. Always interesting to discuss comic book retcons with non-comic book readers. It's always nice to see the reaction to this stuff. This batshit crazy stuff that we just take for granted. Our next email from Luke Giaconetti. The one with the Daleks in London. No, the other one. My fellow novelisation fan, just listened to Remembrance of Remembrance of the Daleks and had two really quick points. One, our mutual friend, the irredeemable Shag, hooked me up with a treasure trove of target novelisations of Doctor Who, which frankly I find to be preferable to watching old episodes. Mostly this is a question of access. Here in the States, to watch classic Doctor Who, you either need a small fortune of DVDs or join the streaming service Box, neither of which I have. But beyond that, the simple fact is that, thanks to the old concept that an off has an unlimited special effects budget, the ups and downs of the show's actual production values never enter into the proceedings. Everything looks as good or as cheap as your mind imagines it to be. Plus, the pace and brevity give the target books a certain charm, almost a pulpy feel, which appeals to me. You know, it was interesting when I first read this. That, that was like a smack the forehead Eureka moment. Yeah, they are like the pulps. They are like pulpy science fiction novels like Doc Savage or, or like Mac Bolan or, or Remo Williams and stuff like that. They are quick, down and dirty reads that, you know, when you're a kid, you could plow through one of them in a couple of hours. And like you said, you know, I, I said in that Doc Who episode, I have a very fond memory of Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which is a John Pertwee story. And I put that down to having read the novel. Long before I ever saw the episode on DVD. Because on DVD, its reputation is that it's not a very good one. Simply because the special effects of the dinosaurs are... Not quite Jurassic Park levels. Let's be charitable. But, as you say, in the book, it doesn't matter. Dinosaurs are stomping around London chasing after the doctor. In the book, that's that's terrifying and massive and, and wonderful. On TV, on a 1970s budget... It's just like having two plastic dinosaurs going. Arr, I curse your sudden yet inevitable betrayal, Doctor. Arr, we must kill you, Doctor. And it, it's kind of lame, but in the book, yeah. So I'm, I've just watched uh, Doctor and the Silurians, a John Pertwee adventure, and again, that is a really good, well-made script hurt by the realization of the Silurians, which just is just men in rubber outfits now. As a fan of long-standing, I can watch that stuff and I can forgive it and I can concentrate on the acting and and the script. But, you know, I can understand more modern eyes looking at it going, what the hell is that? Whereas the book, again, the, the Silurians, how the Silurians look is purely in your mind's eye. Books are better, kids. Remember that. Number two. Sweet Christmas, yes, the novelisation of Star Trek V is light years better than the actual film. And I'm something of an apologist for the film. But Dillard pulls something of a miracle in taking Star Trek V and turning it into an exciting page-turner. Same go for Generations as well. Told you they were quick. Thank you, I'm very much looking forward to the last Voyager instalment and everything else on the menu at the Palace. Luke, yeah, J.M. Dillard's novel for Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is really good. Proving once again that... It's not the the story idea for that film that is bad, but the execution of it. It's like the counterpoint to Superman Returns, where I think the script to Superman Returns is based, is built, sorry, upon such shoddy foundations. Nothing that film can do can salvish, can salvage the basic premise of the script, which is terrible. Superman buggers off for five years and impregnates Lois and doesn't even know it. Whereas Star Trek V. The idea in that film, Shatner's ideas, aren't that bad. Some of the script writing and humour possibly needed toning down a bit, and certainly the budget is in nowhere near enough to be convincing. It's it's the Doctor Who thing that we were just talking about. Again, the novel doesn't have that problem. So the novel, and and arguably the comic book adaptation, but the comic adaptation isn't really as good as as the novel, although Peter David does has a lovely bit at the end about Kirk saying, I've lost two brothers. I was lucky I got one of them back, whereas the film completely forgets that Kirk had a brother, doesn't it? Anyway, that's it for the email sack for this week. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this one. A little bit more impassionate than usual, but, you know, some people just annoy me. Um, I'll be back next time with whatever rises to the top of the pile like shit shit rises doesn't it shit floats so whatever shit rises to the top that's what I'll do next <laughs> uh remember a kids hate kids comics at virginmedia.com is the email address and you know everything's going to be fine hopefully possibly maybe see you next time bye bye